Well, first of all, I would like to ask you for those listening that are not familiar with your work, if you would like to shortly introduce yourself and sort of what your connection with China is. So my name is Anne Feldman. I'm the founder and director of nonprofit Artistic Circles. Uh, for the past two decades, I've been a visiting scholar in gender studies and sexuality at Northwestern. And back in 1997, um, there was a program at the city of Chicago uh, where I had gotten some funding for an earlier radio broadcast in, in Mexico City. And they liked that so much, they said, where would you like to go next? And I said, China. So 97 was what, not so long after Tiananmen Square. And um, I started, you know, doing a lot of research, trying to find connections, building a trip, getting an audio engineer, uh, finding a radio station. So uh, WBEZ in Chicago wanted to broadcast, which is a very uh, kind of avant-garde station, but it also ended up on PRI, Public Radio International, became a 12-part uh, 12 half-hour programs called Unbreakable Spirits. And that is uh, what I believe the women and girls in China are. So I was there in 1997, 1998. The broadcasts were in 1999 and 2000. My guess is that there's a, a world of change that's happened since then. But I can speak to what I witnessed when I was in China. So I think it was back in 1995, I wanted to bring Chinese women composers to Northwestern University where I'm located. So that's in, the, in Illinois, in Evanston. And um, so I approached the music school where I had done a lot of, I had been a performer there, but I had also done a lot of teaching. And I said that I wanted to create a concert of women composers. So the dean and I decided that we would invite three female composers to campus, that they would train um, undergraduate and graduate students on how to perform their music. And then they agreed, the students and these professors, to um, do a live performance and let me film it and also record it for a radio show. So um, I brought in Chen Yi, who is um, married to Zhu Long, who's won the Pulitzer Prize in composition. Chen Yi was a very fine violinist and a spectacular composer and just a super individual. She is at, um, presently is at University of Missouri, Kansas City Conservatory. I also brought in Bunching Lam, and then um, I think the third was a local, I think it was Fengxi Yang, I'm not sure, I can't remember. But it was quite a remarkable night because I interviewed the composers on stage talking about their experiences during the Cultural Revolution. So that was a pretty honest discussion, and it was also filmed by Asian American television and broadcast throughout China and the U.S. So it ended up being kind of this large thing. And we made a radio show called The Musical Bridge, China and the U.S. 
and that got a lot of play back in 1995. It, it was uh, broadcast nationally with a WFMT network. But also when I was in China, it won one of the top awards at the Radio Shanghai Music Festival. And so that made me think that this idea of a bridge between the two countries using uh, women's stories and women's music was very good. And Chen Yi had a very uh, different experience than the others because she was sent to hard labor during the Cultural Revolution, but she would sneak her violin in, in her bag and play at lunchtime for the other uh, people working to manually break up stones. Bunqing Lam lived in Macau, so she had a very different experience. But it was a it was quite a remarkable uh, discussion, and I fell in love with um, Chen Yi and and Ching and their music and their fierceness. Um, you know, I wanted to do more, so it seemed incredibly impossible to go to China. And then all of a sudden, I had funders who wanted to support it. Um, I was pretty naive. I had no real clue of what I was getting into. You know, I hired an engineer, audio engineer. She and I went to China and never thought twice about the fact that I would go into a village, meet all the male elders. And then I'd say, well, I want to talk to that grandma over there. And I want to talk to that little girl there and that mommy. And I think that was not expected, even though I was incredibly honest and clear. And my trip was supported by the city of Chicago. So Mayor Daly was, was behind it. And also the Shenyang government in North uh, East China. So it was not done, you know, as a journalist, just, you know, sneaking into the country. It was all above board. and But still, that kind of expectation was different. I can't imagine anybody being overly excited about my position, but um, I've been blessed to have a lot of network, big network, and kindness of strangers. So um, before I went, some of the, the editors at Asian American TV and Beijing TV made connections for me um, because they were also interested in American radio, right? Broadcast. Um, one of the top people who really made a difference is Su Zheng, and she's a professor at Wesleyan University. And her mother... Uh, Zheng Zhaoying was the first female conductor of um, symphonies and operas in China. So Zheng made, Su made that connection. And then it was like a snowball. I mean, when I went to China, I had three interviews arranged. Can you imagine? I had, I had a five-week trip. I had three interviews. So I was just terrified. Um, but when I talked to Madame Jane, then she introduced me to other people. And then, you know, I'd be interviewed at the local radio station in Beijing. And they'd say, oh, by the way, have you ever met 
the first female rock band, Cobra. And I had, you know, I've been begging, how can I get to them? And so um, there's a long story there. Um, I, I'm just about to have a book published by Rutledge, Taylor and Francis in the UK. And it's called Building Communities of Trust. And there's an entire chapter about China and what it means to have control and not to have control. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons uh, for feminists is what happens when you don't have control? How do you gain some level of control like Chen Yi taking her violin and performing, you know, Madame Zhang conducting, but you know, what do you do during the cultural revolution when everything shuts down? And so that's a bit about what I talk about in my book in those chapters is some of the challenging experiences that I had and the kind of courage that I saw in the women and girls. That's why I called the series Unbreakable Spirits. I interviewed different age groups and people from different, from the, the Han majority and from different minorities and those interviews played out in very different ways. Madame Zhang was probably the most educated and she was educated in the former Soviet Union. So she was plucked, you know, kind of out of the conservatory, given this very, very high education opportunities. And then she introduced me. So she was in her maybe eighties and she introduced me to Ji. Shi Xuan, I don't know how to pronounce her name. And she was the woman who wrote kind of the anthem, uh, the anti-Japanese anthem when the Japanese um, invaded China. So those women were high educated. I don't know the wealth that they came from, but they had their own places. The next level, so kind of in their I mean, we'd have to look at their ages for that time. I can't really tell you exactly, but the women who were in their 20s and 30s were in the more commercial realm. So Cobra was the first female rock band, and I had done a lot of research on them, and they were kind of counterculture. So they did not dress according to modest female Chinese style. Um, I heard them perform in a bar, underground bar, and they had makeup, they had dyed hair, they were smoking cigarettes, they had piercings, um, they had short hair, spiky, you know. Um, and they played all the instruments. You know, there were five, I think five women, but they experienced um, some difficulties because they couldn't, they weren't getting paid the same as the men. They weren't getting gigs the same as the men. They tried to kind of veil their language in their lyrics about the cultural revolution. But, you know, I'm pretty sure it was pretty obvious to the government censors. And so they experienced that. 
counterpoint to that. So I think they were all trained, I almost want to say classically first, that they were trained. Then I met Zhu Hua, who was kind of the number one pop star. She had purple hair, gorgeous. And she came to interview. I had a hotel room and literally the men were lined up in the hallway. And I started the interview. This is how famous she was. There was some construction going on outside the window and we couldn't get a clean recording. So I called the front desk and they're like, Zhu Hua, of course we'll stop. Is an hour enough time? And so they stopped construction for her. Yeah. So she had a classical education, bright as a whip. And she knew what she was doing when she would... When she would write lyrics, she was smart enough to know how to get around censorship. She had a beautiful voice, huge range, huge vocal range, and very colorful, and also, um, you know, a presenter. She knew how to present herself. And then uh, on a completely different realm, I was in Northeast China, and I met with women and girls from the Mansu groups from you know, from the Shibo, from different minorities. And they were in more traditional roles. Like, I think uh, my translator was also from one of those minorities. So that's a non-traditional role. But at the time, the minorities were getting more places in school. They were getting more jobs. So I think I was kind of on the cusp of that. But within the communities, kind of more traditional roles. And the most radical thing that I found, and I talk about it in my book, is that by accident, which always happens to me, I met a female Buddhist nun who was running uh, a temple. There had been four female nuns running this temple in this community for 50 years. And that was unexpected. It was not widely known to outsiders like me, and it was um, against information I had been given about women and religion. And the biggest surprise is that I went to do a series on women in music, and I ended uh, up doing a, a series about women's spirits and their, their fight for their art and their voices. That was not on me. That was on them. You know, I'd say, you know, um, so tell me a little bit about you conducting, you know. And, you know, Zheng Zhaoying would say, I illegally taught conducting during the Cultural Revolution. And so I come back to the States and I call Su Zheng and I said, is this okay? You know, is she going to get in trouble? She said, oh, yeah, let me tell you what I did. And, you know, it's like they pushed me so hard. Talk about comfort zone. I was never comfortable for five weeks, ever. And I was never comfortable for six months after I came back with these precious, precious, precious stories. So, um, you know, if you want to read more, the book will come out in June. And so you'll see pictures and such. But um, I would say it was 100% on them that they did not censor, that they did not let me sit in a quiet little thing about music and, you know, composition and performance. And they, they really pushed. Um, and I wouldn't stop at feminism. I would go bigger. They pushed the envelope in terms of 
courageousness and fearlessness and and voice and uh, honesty, you know. And yes, they were all women because my nonprofit, you know, our mission was to showcase the voices of um, undiscovered women or unheard women. But there were men doing this also. I just never spoke to them. That was not my um, mission. I also became an unbreakable spirit, and I became pretty fearless. And that's because of the women. Um, what I learned to do very quickly was to reach out to the Chinese community in Chicago, and so I made very deep connections with the Chinese American Service League, with professors and students. I hired. Three or four people to do voiceovers. I wanted people to hear Mandarin or to hear Mansu or whatever the dialect was. I wanted them to hear it because nothing like this had ever been on public radio in the U.S. This was the first. So、um, you know, first thing I did was try and write a script and find the music and the clips, the story to tell for each of those women. And then bring in Chinese experts. So I brought in、um, great writer Wen Huang, and I think he wrote a very big book on his experiences during the Cultural Revolution. He is a friend. I brought in a number of Chinese to advise me, and then I did double, triple check to make sure it was safe enough to tell these stories. Sometimes I didn't say where they occurred. I did not want any repercussions for the women. Um, some people were so famous that they weren't concerned, and so we built each show. But the question was, you know, where was this going to sit? And I had a relationship with classical music、uh, radio, WFMT, but I wanted it on talk radio. So I approached WBEZ, and they were just starting a brand new morning show, and they wanted the programming to be local and global. And as soon as they heard my Idea for the twelve shows they were like in. So I had a place once a week to broadcast these half-hour shows. Started during Women's History Month, and then it went on for twelve weeks. And then Public Radio International picked it up, and it went national. I also heard from friends that it was broadcast in China. And who else? Who you know? You never know with how things happen if it was also in other places. But it was a, a groundbreaking for me, for the local Chinese. No one had ever asked them for their stories. I mean, my friend, who's Jane Hu, who did a lot of the voiceover and advised me. She said, "You know, you're telling our stories that nobody asks about, and we never tell." But I was able to tell them through traditional media, and that's what I wanted. I did not want to go to an Asian station. I wanted this to be on, you know, public radio, so that all kinds of Americans could learn about these extraordinary women. And it, it was it was pretty successful. No one had ever done anything about the Chinese women. There was Women's History Month. There was Asian History Month. I mean, you know, and. The the stations needed programming, and I had a pretty good track record so far. You know, I could prove you know pretty high Arbitron ratings and that kind of thing. And you know, I'm pretty tenacious. I wasn't going to give up. Well, what I heard was you know there were a lot of postings on WBEZ. You know, really liking the show. It wasn't necessarily women. It was you know、uh, men and women. 
Yeah, I would have liked to have longer connections, and that's more of what I've done with my later, you know, TV documentaries is build communities. It's very hard to build community between China and the U.S. So it was, you know, like a first step is to get the information out and to have people fall in love, and that's why I did music. We were able to discuss some pretty challenging issues, but there was gorgeous music around it, and there were these gorgeous women. So there was everything was in this beautiful container, which is how I like to do things. Is、um, I think it's more effective, and it just happens to be my way. That must have made an impression for me to win. You know. Uh, one of the top awards at the Radio Shanghai Music Festival because the other winners were the BBC, Canadian Radio. You know, I mean, they were like gigantic national organizations, and were this teeny tiny little nonprofit in Chicago. So,、um, I have a friend who's 95 who says, "You never know the effect of what you do, and you just do it because you need to do it." And so I didn't care about me and what it would mean to my career. I had no interest. I did care about the women, and if it gave me more opportunity to showcase more minority communities, then I was all in. And it did. It did. The funniest thing, Andrea, is you know I went to sign up with all these big producers, right? You know my little signature. So I go to sign up、um, at the Radio Shanghai desk. After you know, I'd already pre-registered and everything. And they're like, "You must have this huge company." And I'm like, "No,、nope, I run this out of my basement." And then you're so funny. I thought I was funny. It's the truth. And that's how I went to China. I had a very big corporation that did a lot of business in China. I had the city of Chicago. I had the city of Shenyang. I had, you know, you bring in the big guys so that you can help out the little littler people like yourself. But I've always brought in government, NGOs, corporations, foundations, you know, whoever, individuals, whoever is open-minded enough to support and to partner. That's what. Building communities of trust is about. It's not setting up barriers. There are so many barriers anyway. Why add? I'm going to talk about what my grandson, who's four, calls sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. If you're clever, and especially if you're a clever woman, you figure out ways around things that will have the desired effect without being shut down. Okay, so、um, Shuhua did a song that was called "Fantasies of the Mind." You'll see it in my book chapter, and she talked about like a an Arabic woman who had a veil but gorgeous eyes, and the eyes were sparkling and sending sensual messages. And because it wasn't a Chinese woman, it passed censorship. A、uh, cobra. Was talking in kind of code, which everybody knew about the Cultural Revolution. Words that were coded.、It、was a very famous Tibetan singer who was trained at the finest、um, Han conservatory, 
but she talked about the snowy mountains. Well, that's Tibet. Okay. So part of the unbreakable spirits is cleverness, is not butting heads directly, is using the beauty of music, is using fantastical lyrics that everybody knows exactly what they are to get the messages like a subterfuge. This is much more effective than direct fighting, at least this was kind of what many of them did. My guess is that the censors knew what was going on, but it wasn't radical enough. It wasn't a revolt. You know, I give the Chinese officials a lot of credit for being very smart, knowing exactly what's going on and having their finger always, always on the pulse. The spirit of the women in China is extraordinary. And even Mao said that the women hold up half the nation. So my kind of prediction and my money is on the women. And I can't say how they'll do it, or I can't really comment on politics. It's not my arena, but you know, the Chinese have a long vision, long, hundreds of years. And I would say the women have a longer vision. So um, if we want to see long-term change, let's look to the women and let's not look in all the expected places. Let's be open to find the unexpected things like my experience was unexpected. I was very excited when you contacted me because right now what we're doing is we're doing seminars and focus groups with college and graduate and MBA students using chapters and case studies in the book to get conversations going about social justice. And one of the chapters is about China and about control. You know, I'd like your advice and your listeners' advice about how to reach students directly. You know, the publisher will certainly sell to the universities and colleges all over the world because they're international. I want to get the book in the hands of students so that it can be used. The ultimate goal is to put the power in the hands of the future leaders and to train all of you of the kind of errors that we made and how we got up, lifted ourselves up and, you know, tried again, or the strategies or the lessons or the questions that we never asked but should have. The message is to future leaders, just do it. Don't wait. Don't second guess. Don't question. You know, find some mentors, find some partners. Go ahead and do what you want. Thank you, Andrea.